Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so excited to welcome back returning guest, Dr. David DeAndre. Thank you for coming back on to MindShift Podcast, David. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's a real pleasure. So we are here to talk about your brand new book. I know you were just on a few months ago, but you've got a couple things have changed. You've got a book that's just come out. It's called Tulip, the Poisonous Flower of Calvinism. So this is apparently doing quite well on Amazon right now, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, trending number one in its category as a new release. Wow. Uh, and it's been quite interesting to see who it's beating out, so to speak. Uh, mm. For a little while there, it was beating out John MacArthur's new book. <laughs> How ironic. Did <laughs> uh, I sort of take him to task in mine? Um, Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, John MacArthur. I found that quite an interesting moment of synchronicity. Oh, that's that is too ironic, surely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to listen to John MacArthur every day on the radio when I was a good evangelical until he started doing a series on speaking in tongues and how it was uh, of the devil and evil and everything else. I thought, okay, that's I wasn't a believer in tongues myself, but I thought that's a bridge too far, even as an evangelical. So yeah, I gave up on John MacArthur years ago. Yeah, well, uh, he's part of the reason for the book, mm. in a way. Uh, he came to Philadelphia College of Bible when I was attending it back in the 80s, and he was a guest speaker, and I was quite taken with him, and I bought his Bible commentaries, and at that time, my roommate was harping on about Calvinism all the time, and I didn't really know I didn't really study the Bible seriously in high school, uh, like probably most people. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Bible college, then, of course, I took it seriously. And uh, I was pretty astounded by what my roommate was saying. I just couldn't believe that God would choose us and it wouldn't matter about anything in us, unconditional election, you know, uh, that he just chooses who he wants and doesn't choose who he doesn't want. So uh, I couldn't believe that was true. So I went home that first summer after my freshman year and really did a thorough study of the book of Romans. And when I came back in my sophomore year, I was a converted Calvinist. (laughs) So Paul and Romans did it for you. Well, according to the book's description on Amazon, I was reading, I haven't read the book yet. I have to confess it's on the list. I'm going to get the book at some point, but it says, I thought it was quite interesting. It says, this is the book for people who are deconstructing their faith, questioning their Christian faith, possibly feeling overwhelmed in the process. So why did you write the book? I mean, who's your target audience? Who do you want to read your book? Right. It's people who are starting to question things and are still confused. Is there a hell or is there not a hell or all those kind of questions that we struggle with and Uh, I've wrestled with them for many, many years, and then I started putting things together when I was asked to teach uh, Bible courses at a Christian university, ironically, just after I had left Christianity for good, Mm -hmm. but that forced me to find an approach to teach the Bible that I was comfortable with and not to use it like a missionary endeavor or as a devotional, but to really look at the Bible with an academic type of objectivity. And because I prepared my lectures in that way, I saw the Bible in an entirely new way, much more objectively. And that bulk of the lecture material is what comprises the five main chapters of the book on the uh, five points of Calvinism. So why, why Calvinism, though, of all things? I mean, you mentioned there's got to be a personal connection. You, at some point, I guess in your, what was it, your sophomore year of Bible college, you became a convinced Calvinist. 
Yeah. What's what's the personal connection though? Why Calvinism? There's a lot of good theology or theologies, I should say. I don't know if they're good or not, but there's a lot of theologies out there. You could have picked Arminianism or something like that. Yeah, well, um, with the original title for the book, the working title was um, Confessions of a Recovering Calvinist. And then I, I sort of mentioned that title to a few people and they said, oh, that'll never sell. It's <laughs> so, never going to fly, David. <laughs> then I, Gotta be then, more catchy uh, than that. The next title was The Naked Calvinist. Uh, and that's what I pitched to the publishers at, at Apocryphile Press. The, the publisher suggested tulip, the poisonous flower of Calvinism. Now, the reason, though, for using Calvinism as the approach was that I was a Calvinist for many years. I, I even attended 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia with uh, the great preacher James Boyce, who was a Calvinist. So I was really, I was in it hook, line, and yeah, sinker. You were all in. Yeah. And then, uh, I, uh, after I graduated from Philadelphia College of Bible, I got a job as a minister of music in a Methodist church, but it wasn't so much focused on theology in that church. I was the minister of music and didn't care so much about it at that point. But then I decided that uh, being a minister of music wasn't for me. So I went back to school to get graduate degrees in music history. And then I felt finally free to examine things again or re-examine my mm -hmm. beliefs and i started from the ground up does god exist not exist whatever and um basically tore everything apart and it wasn't until my midlife crisis in my early 40s and then teaching the bible that i was able to form a picture about the bible about christianity that really suited my new way of looking at life so I, I had to find a way to make the book. Well, how do you write a big book, right? <laughs> you, mm. you have to find some angle or approach. And I knew that just writing about my life wouldn't make a full book. Or would anyone really care to read about it? That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. So I found a way to create sort of a parallel narrative uh, sandwiched in between and outside of all the Calvinist chapters the five main Calvinist chapters to show where I was at different points in my life as they relate to the topics in the chapter about Calvinism mm -hmm. that they precede or follow. Right. So it's, it's, it's kind of an academic work, but at the same time, a very personal one. And that's the thing I was, I was going to say that when we connected on the podcast we did before, I think mm -hmm. we may have remarked on this as you were telling your story of, you know, transitioning out of evangelicalism, going to, Brussels and Ukraine and going through all these things that you went through, what comes through is really your heart for people. Cause I noticed that, you know, as a former pastor myself, I say this a lot to people who are in ministry, you know, that we still have this quote unquote pastoral perspective. And I've been enjoying, you've been writing, I know this isn't about the book, but I think it might relate. You've been writing on Facebook. I don't know for how long you've been writing this sort of an ongoing narrative about a guy called Percy P. Warmer, PhD. And you've yes. got this ongoing narrative. And there's every so often you'll come out with a new installment of Percy P. Warmer, the travails that he's going through and questioning things. And he's an educated man. He's a scientist, I think. But yet it doesn't square with what he's hearing in church. I mean, does that relate to the, the sort of target audience of the book, the person who yeah. doesn't quite, these things don't quite add up? Well, as you know, well, first of all, Percy P. Warmer, PhD, that's probably the next book. Uh, it's a satire. And yes, it not is. a lot of people understand that it's satire at first. They think right. I'm being serious. But um, it's about his gradual awakening, starting to question things, and the people in his life who try to dissuade him, like the pastors in the church. And the point there being, as long as you have a vested interest, you're going to sway someone uh, with your bias to stay in the church or stay in the faith, whatever that may be, because your livelihood depends on people being in the church. And that was one of the things I decided when I started questioning things. It was to never go with any question to a pastor or a missionary or anybody who's a professional Christian, because they're not open to these things. And they're going to always tell you, really, it's this way. 
and you mm-hmm. shouldn't be thinking the way you are. Uh, so Percy is starting to talk to his friends and uh, he's discovering some amazing things about some of his friends. For example, one of his best friends just came out to him as gay and he's his whole world is overturned upside down. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that does speak to things in my life because when I went to grad school, it was at Temple University in Philadelphia. It was not a Christian place. So I started making a lot of new friends uh, in the music department. Uh, and so whenever you're in the music field, you will most likely encounter uh, gay musicians. Mm-hmm. And they were all so bright and witty and funny. And and they weren't the monsters that I had been. It's right. horrible pagans. And then I, I sort of, uh, looked back on my time at PCV and realized that half of my professors in the music department were in the closet. Mm-hmm. They were definitely gay. I just didn't really think of much about it at the time. And some of my classmates were also. And it started opening me up to questioning the Christian view of homosexuality and a lot of other things. And doing the research for the book, I did a lot of uh, research on recent defectors, famous defectors. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons they cite for starting to question things is maybe moving to a different part of the country, let's say out of the Bible Belt to California, uh, for example, with Rhett and Link, the podcasters. And then they started making gay friends and thinking, hey, these guys are pretty cool. So the um, it, it will open your mind once you get out of your little circle, your cozy circle. And I don't know about you, but all the way up until I was a minister of music, I was always surrounded by Christians. I was almost in the never in a place where there were no Christians. Uh, mm-hmm. You could say in high school, I was on the basketball team. But see, that doesn't really count because your, your little clan, your tribe, it's your youth group and the people in your church, right? And you're always trying to save the others, mm-hmm. uh, save all of your friends in high school. So it's, it, once you get into an environment that's not Christian, then you're finally confronted with a lot of uh, challenges to your belief system, I think. And as you say, in the Calvinist context, I'm sure we'll get into the theology of it. Why should you bother to try and save anyone? Because they're either elect or non-elect. So that right, right there is a a long-standing issue within Calvinism. But speaking of research, I'm interested. What do you what did you find out about John Calvin, sort of the man, as you did all this reading and and all yeah. this of his work? What what sort of influences were there on him? Because what I've understood about Calvin, he was very young when he wrote his Institutes. He was quite a young yeah. man and quite a recent convert to sort of reformed. He followed Luther's theology and left the Catholic Church and all that. But he wasn't like a, a, a long-standing theologian really when he wrote the the work was he no the the thing i focused on was the the tie between him and augustine in the way they viewed themselves and uh, if you read augustine's confessions it's just full of self-loathing yeah he's always saying what a terrible person he was and still is and then i try to find similar things in calvin's writings and you can find those things uh, in Calvin's writings, uh, in the Institutes, for example, where he feels like he's a miserable wretch, a complete and total sinner, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing to realize about evangelical beliefs, is you start from a starting point that you are totally depraved and miserable and a wretch, and you can't do anything about it. Mm. And that's that's not a very good way to view yourself, if you ask me, because it will have ramifications on all of your relationships. And that that has to be reversed if you want to have uh, a healthy emotional life, I think. Right. So, yeah, Calvin's own view of himself may not have been very healthy if we, we could put it in today's terms, in terms of his own mental health. And that's the other thing, too, is that I, I picked up recently, I know we talked a little bit about this before we hit record, but Dave Hunt's book, and mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of research on 
sort of theocracies, examples of theocracies in in history. And he wrote a book in 2012. It's called John Calvin's Tyrannical Kingdom. It's about uh, basically Calvin's attempt to establish sort of a dominion, a dominionist approach in, in Geneva there. One thing that's interesting about Hunt, I don't know if you've read his work, but it's so hard to read Dave Hunt because he'll do a real good academic job of sort of breaking things down. And like you, he makes a lot of really convincing connections between Augustine's writings and Calvin's writings. I think he makes that case. Then he'll turn around and say something like, you know, this is a satanic heresy because it doesn't fit my reading of the Bible. You think, oh man, you've got to really carefully filter out guys like that. Have you come across uh, Hunt's work at all? No, I've tried to avoid evangelical books for that reason <laughs> these topics uh what what i wanted to do was get the actual words of calvin himself and let him speak for himself mm. and then hopefully my readers are intelligent readers and they can evaluate the words mm-hmm. and then i find his allusions and points of connection with augustine and i let augustine speak for himself now when i was a Bible college student, I thought Augustine was the cat's meow. I mean, I mm-hmm. thought he was great. Now, with these new eyes, I think he's pretty terrible. Pretty flawed. Eh? I don't need to say that in the book. I just have to let him say what he says. Yeah, and let him I, speak for himself. And then I find others like MacArthur, uh, John Piper, for example, and I let them say what they say. And Paul Washer about uh, how everyone's going to be jumping for joy when you're writhing in pain in hell, you know. Let them say what they say, and people can say, see how just terrible it is. Hmm. Uh, But as far as Calvin and his personality, the episode uh, with um, Servetus, Mm -hmm. uh, where he, uh, he condoned basically burning him to death. I mean, there, there were some indications. I read his letters at the time, his correspondence to other people in Europe, and he didn't really want uh, Servetus to have a terrible, horrible death. He tried to have him avoid that. Nevertheless, at one point when Servetus was in Geneva, Calvin wrote to a friend and said, if he ever comes back to Geneva, I can't guarantee that he'll leave alive. Chilling and words. I know. And you have to wonder about a person that will pursue somebody to the death. Mm. Now, people say, oh, it was common to do that at the time. Well, I don't really care if it was common to do it. It's just not a nice thing to do, to say the least. It's true. And the Servetus or Servetus, he made the mistake of dropping in on Geneva on the way through. I think he was going going to Italy or something like that. And I think he'd yeah. had some exchanges with Calvin before. They'd had some sort of theological disagreements, yeah. but that was his final and, and worst mistake that he ever made. He never left Geneva alive and he was well, burned as a, as a heretic. But the thing about that is uh, I read up carefully on that because Servetus or Servetus or Servetus, whatever, he could have gone a different route he was going from France where he was being pursued by the Pope, also probably to be burned to death, but he was, in, he was fleeing from uh, Southern France and he could have just gone through Genoa or somewhere mm, in Italy. Or straight and route. But he decided to go to Geneva and he was the kind of guy who, who loved to thumb his nose at people and to prove how much he was right. He probably was a real jerk, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he might have had a martyr complex, which I also found in Origen, the, the old church father back in the third century. When Origen's father was arrested by the Romans, Origen was only a teenager, and he wanted to be arrested too with his father so that he could become a martyr. And so Origen had a martyr wish, and eventually later in life, Well, in that case, his mother prevented him from going. But later in life, Origen was arrested because the Christians were being blamed for a plague. And he was arrested, tortured. Eventually, he was released, but he died of his his wounds during the torture. So we do find various people. Oh, by the way, St. Sebastian. Do you remember the... St. Sebastian. He's the one who was uh, shot with arrows. 
I'm sure I've, I've probably come across him in There's church a lot history of paintings somewhere. Of him tied to a tree and he's being shot with arrows. Right. Well, you know what? He survived uh, that. Wow. But later, he uh, saw the people or the guy who instigated his arrest and the death sentence on him, even though he survived. He found the guy and he started taunting him in the street, and the guy beat him to death. So. He, some guys are just, they don't know when it to stop. It doesn't pay. It doesn't pay to thumb your nose at the wrong person. Yeah. That's the case in Servetus or Servetus, whatever. Yeah, uh -huh. he died a horrible death, didn't he? Well, yeah. going back to uh, Calvin's dependence on Augustine, I do think, like I said, with Hunt, it's 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 so, you got to read it so carefully. He does make some good points. And I think one thing that I never really thought of, and Hunt makes the point that if you think about it, uh, here's Calvin. He's a he's now a follower of sort of Lutheran's Luther's Protestant theology. He's renounced the Catholic Church, but yet he's making use of Augustine, who was a Catholic theologian. And that right there is is problematic on the face of it. If you're coming up with a brand new theology for Protestantism, why would you be dependent on a Catholic theologian for for all of your ideas or many of your ideas? Yeah. Well, Augustine was sort of like a sola scriptura guy. I mean, he bases all of his arguments in scripture. Mm -hmm. I didn't read up much upon, and the church wasn't quite the same back in the fourth century or fifth century. Sure. And for a while there, it wasn't even in Rome. Rome got sacked, so they had to set up in Northern Africa. And Augustine bases his arguments on scripture. His big opponent then was Pelagius. Uh, and that's also interesting when we don't have any writings by Pelagius, but Augustine quotes him at length. So we kind of can reconstruct yes, it somewhat. Yeah. And it may not be uh, completely objective, in other words. Yeah. Pelagius was very similar to Arminius in his ideas. They, anybody throughout that part of history and even today who wants to give any credit to, to humanity for being somewhat good and having sort of something like a free will they get really shouted down by these guys mm -hmm. they don't want to give humanity any credit for anything and uh that's was the argument back in augustine's day and then it resurfaces throughout history but especially then i focused on calvin and his point of view but then there was the big exchange between erasmus and luther in what is called a diatribe uh where they trade arguments with each other back and forth through long treatises. Mm -hmm. and I read a lot of Luther and I have to say, he's like a windbag too. I mean, he these can't guys go just on, don't yeah. know when to shut up. <laughs> Between Augustine, Calvin and Luther, they write forever, ever. They just must love what they have to say. It's true. They had a lot of things to say for sure, especially at that time. Well, is that where Calvin picks up this idea of this sovereignty of God? I mean, that's probably one of the biggest themes running through Calvinism, isn't it? That God is sovereign. He elects certain people and others are just apparently predestined to hell. Some are predestined to heaven. Is that something that originates in Augustine? Well, I, I would say it originates in Paul in Romans chapter nine. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the key text for those kind of things where Paul says that God, God is like the potter who makes some vessels for ordinary use and some for special use. And he's allowed to do whatever he wants with the clay. Hmm. And then in that chapter, you also have the idea that God's choice does not depend on anything in man. Uh, and he cites the example of God loving Jacob and hating Esau before they were even born. So it wasn't that God waited for Jacob and Esau to do something for him to choose one or the other. They were, they were still in the womb. So he just made a choice about who he loves and doesn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's based on Paul. Now the connection between Paul, Augustine and Calvin is a similar self-loathing. So the basic ideas of Paul are all about his own feeling of worthlessness. And you have to wonder why he feel or felt so worthless, because he talks about miserable wretch that I am in Romans chapter seven, 
and later talking about a thorn in the flesh, a tormentor sent by the devil, he feels powerless to do anything about it. And so this sense of powerlessness colors his theology. So he, he has to think that God does everything because I can do nothing. I'm powerless. Now, I am not the first one to say that, but I read it first in John Shelby Spong's book, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, that mm -hmm. maybe Paul was gay in the closet, of course, and probably celibate. But because he couldn't do anything about his orientation, he felt powerless and also very guilty if he did act on his impulses. And I think that's why he calls his body a body of death, because if he did act on it, it could maybe have been the death penalty for him. Hmm. Uh, and certainly it was prescribed in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. So I think that's Paul's angle and it colors his theology. And therefore, in Romans chapter nine, God does everything because there's no way I could do anything. Right. Yeah. Personal responsibility. Yeah. He's very conflicted in that. If that's the case, isn't it? You can yeah. see that the tension all through Paul's writings, especially in places like Romans. I remember reading and studying through Romans and preaching through Romans yeah. and having the same kind of problems you just described. You know, it's like some of the views of God in the book of Romans are like, wow, you know, here's a God who's absolutely sovereign. We have no choice in the matter. Apparently, some vessels are prepared for destruction, as you say. You mm -hmm. think, wow, uh, am yeah, I and, one of the elect or what? Right. And this is where modern theologians who are uncomfortable with those words of Paul have tried to make, uh, have tried to sidestep them mm -hmm. uh, through a theory called the diatribe theory. And it was first presented in a PhD, a doctoral dissertation at the Yale Divinity School by Stanley Stowers. And he says that those major chapters of Romans up to about chapter 12, that Paul is actually imagining an, an opponent and he's having a classic diatribe, which is when you present your opponent's view and then you uh, yeah. destroy them. And so then he says, Romans chapter nine, or all those difficult passages, I, I, I'm not specifically sure about that, but all those specific passages are not actually Paul's words. Those are the, per, the words of the imagined opponent. Ah, And that turns very clever. completely on its head. Right. But uh, I, I did a little research on that and what scholars think about those ideas. And there's a lot of disagreement about that, too. And I have a, a little bit of an insight from having been at Yale. I know what it takes or what your professors really want you to do when you write a doctoral dissertation at Yale is you need to come up with some original idea sure. that's going to, going to impress the committee. And I'm sure that uh, Stowers thought, oh, well, here's an original idea and it will impress the committee, right? It certainly was that. You have to add something to academics, don't you? That's the whole point of a doctoral thesis. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I don't find the idea convincing at all, but I can see why as a dissertation, it would pass the committee because it's an original idea presented in a convincing way. And um, it does that. Yeah. And it's an interesting argument because it lets Paul off the hook in some ways, isn't it? From saying exactly. some pretty horrible things. Exactly. And one of the horrible things comes right away in Romans chapter one, starting in verse 18 uh, and 19, where Paul starts on his argument that the wrath of God is coming down on everyone who has rejected the knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. And one of the consequences of rejecting the knowledge of God is that men start sleeping with men and women start sleeping with women. In other words, if you become an atheist, you automatically become a homosexual. Right, you'll probably turn now, gay. <laughs> yeah, see, that doesn't follow. Some twisted now, logic uh, there. According to this diatribe theory, you would think that Paul is quoting an imagined opponent in Romans 1. But in fact, there is no break in the text from his argument. He goes from saying, I consider everything, the glory of the gospel and everything, why do I consider it so glorious? Because the wrath of God is coming against the, the ones yeah, who the reject it. Right? So there's no break in the argument. And I checked even Stowers' articles on Romans chapter one. 
And even he says that there's no break in the argument. And those are the words of Paul. So that strengthens my feeling that Paul was projecting guilt onto the situation. It doesn't follow naturally that you, if you become an atheist, you automatically switch teams, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I think that's a guilt projection on Paul's part. Right. And from what we know about Paul, the man, if, if this person actually existed, I mean, he was raised in Tarsus. He probably studied Greek rhetoric and that kind of thing. So he was familiar with those rhetorical forms. He would have been able to set that dialogue up if indeed, because that was a, a very common form in classical literature, wasn't it? This diatribe imagined opponents having this discussion uh, back and forth and back and forth. So he could have very easily set that up in his epistle. He does set it up in a small way because in a classic diatribe, you you would say, you say this, just to make it clear that you say that. And Paul does in various points in chapter two, three and beyond, he does say, well, you say, and I say, in, so like immediately after he can one do or that two verses, he immediately goes back to his argument. So there are not vast pages and passages in Romans that are the opponent's argument. Paul only says a couple words about it. And, he, and then he'll say, why do you say, oh, man, that God can't be this and that? Who are you to, to question God, you know? Mm-hmm. He goes right away into his argument. Yeah, he was um, very capable rhetorically of doing that. When we get back from the break in the second half of this conversation with Dr. David DeAndre, we're going to dive into the so-called tulip, the poisonous flower of Calvinism that David's book is all about. What is it? What does that acronym represent? And specifically, we're going to talk about the toxicity of the tulip, the poisonous flower of Calvinism. We're also going to get into this issue of Christian nationalism. How does specifically Calvinism as a system, why did that feed into the Christian nationalism that we're seeing today? We're going to find out it goes right back to the Puritans and their desire to found America in some way, shape, or form, some form of a theocracy, or in the words of the famous sermon, America as the shining city on a hill from which the gospel would be uh, preached to all the nations. And of course, we're going to see that a great many Christian nationalists have picked up on that idea that America was founded to be a Christian nation. And I've done a lot of talking about this in the past as well. And then we're going to conclude by talking about how can you recover if you have been affected by the toxicity or the poison of Calvinism as a system? How do you recover? How do you take back your life and put the pieces back together, recover a sense of authentic self? And we're going to get some really good advice from David on the back end of the episode. So stay tuned for that in the second half. What's coming up here in the next few episodes on Mindship Podcast, I want to bring you up to speed. I've been unable, unfortunately, to connect with my good friend, Andrew Gurovich. I've talked about this. I've been hoping we could set something up to talk about how the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament fed into our deconstruction. But for one thing and another, we just could not make that happen. So unfortunately, we had to put that on the back burner for now. But that might be coming up at some point in the future. I'm going to keep working on that. But as I'm doing this recording now, tonight I've got a recording session set up with Bruce Gehring, sir. He's a friend of mine on Facebook. Some of you may have read some of his posts. He's a former IFB pastor, independent fundamental Baptist pastor. He's now an atheist out of Ohio. And I'm sure as both ex-pastors, we're going to have a really good time comparing stories, talking about our deconstruction, our deconversion, and what we're doing now to rebuild our lives. And then I've got that recording set up with Dave Warnock. We are going to be talking about his book, Childish Things. This has just come out recently, and I listened to it on Audible. Absolutely fantastic. Another ex-pastor that we are going to be comparing and swapping stories with. And I'm also working on getting former guest David Johnson back on the show. I've been doing a lot of research. I've been mentioning on Doug Wilson, the controversial sort of cult-like pastor who's building an empire up out of Moscow, Idaho. And uh, one of the things I've uncovered is Doug Wilson and Stephen Wilkins wrote a book years ago called Southern Slavery As It Was. 
and it was sort of a full-throated defense of, or I should say a Christian defense of slavery. Now, this is nothing new, but I wanted to bring David Johnson back on because he's an expert in this sort of field of research. So we, I was actually on his podcast the other day, which is a new one he's doing again now. He used to do the Skeptics and Seekers podcast, but he's put that on hold for now. He's doing one called Red Letters, and we discussed... Uh, the teachings of Jesus, and I've been on it a couple times now. I really enjoyed meeting up again with David, so I'm working on that as well as having him come back in as a guest for maybe October on our MindShift Zoom call. In fact, speaking of which, this Sunday coming up on the 25th of September, we are going to have returning guest Luna Corbden. They're going to be coming back on this time as the guest for our first MindShift Zoom call uh, in the month of September. Where we had, took a break for the summer. And I'm really excited to be doing those again and having Luna as my first guest. We're going to be talking about their book. Uh, they've done a lot of research on cult psychology, cult tactics, identifying. And this is something we talked about in our podcast that was on just a few months ago. The similarities between their experiences in Mormonism and my experiences growing up in evangelicalism. The crossover of cult psychology, cult tactics. And then, like I mentioned, we're going to be having, hopefully, David Johnson coming back in in the month of October. So look for that. You can gain access to those closed calls by being a member of the Patreon community. The links to that, as always, are in the show notes. All right, let's get on back into the second half of this conversation with Dr. David DeAndre as we continue talking about his book, Tulip, the Poisonous Flower of Calvinism. What about yeah. this idea of the tulip? Because your, your your book is, is titled The Tulip, the Poisonous Flower of Calvinism. I had to actually go today and look up I, I've learned these in Bible college, but it struck me again as I was going through. It's an acronym, isn't it? What does the TULIP stand for, and why are they so poisonous, I guess, in that context? Yeah, it stands for uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the same. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it works nicely in English, but the original order of everything was different back in the 15 and 1600s when these things were being hashed out in the various church councils and those were written in latin so the acronym or the acrostic it doesn't work wasn't a tulip <laughs> in those language, right and even the original um let's see i have it here when arminius uh, after arminius died and uh his followers made five points of disagreement or how they saw things slightly different than the other people in the reform uh, community, the order was also different, even the way they brought it up. So they brought, it's called the five articles of remonstrance. Mm -hmm. And they were disagreeing with something in the Belgic confession, which is from the mid 1500s, which was set up from the reform community there after Calvin had died. Um, Now, when Arminius died in 1609, then his followers wrote up these five articles of remonstrance, and the order was conditional election, unlimited atonement, total depravity, prevenient grace, and conditional preservation of the saints. So that order is different. Then there was another committee formed to discuss all these things in Dort. The canons of Dort then put the order more in a logical way. It's logical to start with total depravity because that establishes your need of a savior, your mm-hmm. need of salvation. Yeah, we're born into uh, sin and, and all that, yeah. And again, that, that goes back to Paul. Paul said, for in Adam all have sinned. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the weird thing about that is that Paul believed that Adam was a real person. Even Augustine believe that Adam was a real person, but he was willing to say that it's, um, it's a bit allegorical, the story. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he was open to that idea, but you never find anything in Calvin where he doesn't believe that Adam is a real person. And then you flash forward to our century and you have this discussion with John MacArthur and um, uh, the other big Calvinists who died lately on biblical inerrancy. And MacArthur says, hey, where are you going to stop believing the Bible? Genesis 1, Genesis 2? Look, 
we have to draw a line somewhere. And of course, Adam and Eve were real people because the Bible says so. Exactly. Right? And we know that the Bible is true because the eyewitness to those events dictated that story, namely God. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that convenient? God is yeah. right there orchestrating the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> and he's so the it's eyewitness. open and shut case, David. <laughs> yeah. And, it's just uh, that you simple. Know, and then lately in the Southern Baptist Convention, there's this argument, staunch argument that Adam and Eve were real people because that's the basis of complementarianism, which is just another word for patriarchy exactly. in the church. Well, so you, you can see how they take it so seriously because I remember seeing a picture. Somebody went through uh, Ken Ham's Ark experience and there's a plaque uh, on the wall and it said something to the effect of that if you disagree with the Genesis story, the first couple chapters of the Bible, then Jesus and everything else are thrown out. That's you, right. So yeah, you cannot allow even this tiniest crack to appear in the edifice. Yeah. It's all got to be true, historically verifiable. If of course they can't verify it, but in their view, it's all it's all got to be true. Yeah, That's such and, a toxic uh, thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And there was um, uh, Mike Lacona, uh, a conservative theologian in the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a seven hundred page book defending the veracity and literal truth of the resurrection all right mm -hmm. now 700 pages that's from an evangelical point of view but in the midst of those in that book there was a couple spots where he said that matthew's account of events he might have used the greek technique of hyperbole uh -oh. uh, when he said that uh, hundreds or thousands or whoever came out of the grave when Jesus gave up the ghost. Yeah, and walked the around Jerusalem. Right. And yeah. he said, well, that, that might be the Greek thing of hyperbole about famous people and all that. Well, all these guys like Norman Geisler and uh, whoever else, they went after him. Like, hey, you can't make any break in, in the exactly. narrative. Here. There can't be any assertion of... Uh, literary techniques right hmm. so it's so obvious that adam and eve that's a mythological story it's it's just so obvious it's amazing you have to say it right but yeah well going through the tulip thing today in preparation for talking to you it reminded me of a discussion or two that we had in when i was in seminary and it was all about i think it was in a soteriology class which is all about the doctrine of salvation and everything and we went through the tulip and we went through each of the five points of Calvin's theology and tried to basically parse each one biblically, like what's the biblical justification? I can remember talking about with the professor, how is it that all sin is imputed to humanity from Adam and Eve? And there's all kinds of theories out there in evangelicalism, as I'm sure you're aware of. We talk about limited atonement. You know, how could Jesus's death only be applicable to the elect and not for the whole world? And we went through all this. We spent days going through all these elements of Calvinism. And I was never a Calvinist, but I could see the appeal of it because I was, I don't know what I was. I was kind of a cross between Arminian and Calvinist, I guess. But I can remember for sure as an evangelical worrying that I might lose my salvation. And that's, oh, yeah. that's a big one that Calvinists sort of, answer isn't it that you cannot lose your salvation if you're one of the elect you cannot lose your salvation and i could find some comfort in that as a christian thinking okay maybe calvin was right maybe i, I won't be able to lose my salvation if i do backslide but you can see the doubts creep in don't they they do i came across some wacky theories about original sin by the way uh augustine his theory was that the moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam lost control of his erections. Okay. <laughs> That's not weird at all. <laughs> so he said, after that moment, Adam needed lust to perform his husbandly yeah. duties. Oh, come Therefore, on. because they needed lust to arouse themselves, that's how sin is passed down through procreation, through lust. Of course, it all makes perfect sense now, David, now that you've explained it. And I now, see the now, light. 
Talk about a projection. I think <laughs> oh, I think Augustine was at a certain age when things weren't working well. Mm -hmm. And there was <laughs> and no there Viagra. Was, exactly. There was no Viagra at that time. So uh, I think that's where Augustine got his idea. Um, wow. So I did come across some wacky ideas, but the one saved, always saved thing was something that my father preached, uh, a Baptist minister. And what I found very interesting and I'm sure other people who are watching this have experienced the same, and you too, probably. The moment I left Christianity, even though it was once saved, always saved, the moment I left for good, suddenly I had lost it. Exactly. How does that work? Now you're an apostate and a backslider and everything else. Well, well, backsliding is okay, you see, because you haven't lost it. Ah, you could still come back. You, yeah, there's still the possibility that at the end of your life, you're going to have a, a moment of a, uh, of a vision, right? That mm. you've been wrong your whole life. But uh, most people, when they leave, and especially you find it with these recent prominent high-profile defectors, lots of people will say, well, they were never Christians in the exactly. first place. Exactly. That's the easiest argument. It's just yeah. proof that they weren't ever saved. Even though, uh, I mean, in your case, you were a minister. I was, when I left for good, I was a full-time missionary on the field. Yeah, we were uh, all trying in. Trying to save everybody, right? And because uh, people who remain inside Christianity find it threatening when someone from the inside finally sees that it's, none of it is true. That mm -hmm. poses a big threat. So you have to somehow say, well, they weren't Christians, or maybe they're just backsliding, you know. Hmm. It's a toxic theology, isn't it? And that's when I started studying this thing about Calvin's attempt to set up a theocracy in Geneva. I mean, do you think that his attempt to set up some sort of theocratic kingdom, is that sort of an outlier of his or living out of his own doctrine and theology? I mean, he's trying to impose a certain version of Christianity, a certain reading of the Bible on civic society. And the problem, of course, now is that dominionist, reconstructionist people today, they look at his example in Geneva and say, that's a model. That's how society should be. And we see, I think, things like Roe versus Wade and attempts to turn America back into a Christian nation. Is there a connection back to that kind of thinking that, hey, we need where the state actually carries out the demands, in a sense, of the church because it's a, a righteous thing to do? Yes, well, uh, I was able to trace some of those ideas back to the Calvinists who first came to America with mm. Governor Winthrop. They were all in Holland at the time, in, and they sailed from Leiden, which I had the opportunity to visit when I lived in Belgium. They sailed from Leiden on the Mayflower, and when they arrived, the famous thing that Winthrop gave um, that speech about a city on a hill, mm -hmm. and they brought this idea that they were establishing God's new theocracy yeah it was a kingdom yeah in, in the new world yeah and they they saw themselves as the new israel and the new jerusalem and all that and then those ideas resurfaced back in december 2020 after the election uh in the states where they had this big jericho rally in mm -hmm. washington and i watched all three hours of all the speakers and you have Eric Metaxas, who was the, the, the MC, uh, and I watched a lot of his radio broadcasts. They're all parroting the same idea that America is God's chosen nation. And it's a lot like what you say, these theocracies, that you see yourself in a pre special privileged position. And uh, it's God's will acting through the church. The, the most weird idea about the whole thing was to in, to associate Trump with Cyrus the Great, who mm -hmm. sent. Well, he allowed the, the Jews to come back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To, to the promised land from exile. Exactly. Right. And um, so that that view was posed as uh, Trump. He's the new Cyrus because. Uh, you find Cyrus mentioned in Isaiah 45, mm -hmm. and Trump was the 45th president, and it didn't matter uh, that Trump wasn't a, a true believer, so to speak, because Cyrus wasn't either. Wasn't either, yeah, but he was used <laughs> mightily by God, and that's the, yeah, the evangelical said Trump is going to rescue us from the eight years of exile, in air quotes, that we suffered under Obama's 
liberal <laughs> presidency and we're going to usher in this new dominionist kingdom and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. And you see all those paintings of uh, Jesus propping Trump up or his uh -huh. head Trump's shoulder. and The ultimate Christian nationalism. Well, my last question is, thinking about how you've come out of Christianity and Calvinism, how would you advise people to sort of rebuild their lives if they're coming out of that? Like you said, the target audience of your book, the person who's deconstructing, questioning his or her faith, how do they sort of rebuild? How do they get out of that toxic Calvinism? Yes, well, I, I do encounter a lot of people who have left for good, but they're still plagued by the fear, what if I'm wrong? And what if hell really does exist? And I find that you can trace all of those fears, the residual fears that you carry with you, probably to a fundamental fear of God. And mm -hmm. part of the process for me and for many people is to revise your view of what the divine is. And you can go about it a couple of different ways. You could just trash it all and become an atheist. Yeah, burn it all and down. And that should remove any fear. Of That'll God. do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If and, there is uh, no God. Yeah, you know, a lot of people go that route. Uh, Bart Campolo, for example, the son of Tony Campolo, he's gone that route. Mm -hmm. He's a humanist. Um, Frankie Schaefer, yeah. is the, yeah. the famous Francis Schaefer. There's a lot of people who genuinely go that route and feel comfortable with it. That isn't really the way I feel comfortable. As a, a classical musician, there's a lot of classical music that sort of gets me in touch with a transcendent experience. Mm. So I feel like there is something out there, but I can't really say definitively what it is. So I'm more comfortable being an agnostic. But there's no reason for me to believe that the primary ground of being is something we should be afraid of. Mm -hmm. Whatever you want to call it, I, I like to call it source. And we have to sort of posit it philosophically that there would be an uncaused first cause of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can't prove it. So, uh, but then why do we have to assume that it's something to be feared? Mm. And once you handle that idea, and you know, a lot of people in the spiritual journey community, so to speak, have decided that background of being or source of being is unconditionally loving or whatever that is right and when you can convert your fears into something like that then you're going to be on better footing when it comes to the residual fears about hell or the rapture because those presuppose a god who's out to get you mm, yeah. and if you can eliminate or reverse that whole thought i no longer feel that uh, the source of being is out to get me. In fact, I feel it. It's very supportive. Whatever I decide is important to me. And, and when I go for it, uh, the universe seems to supply the means. Uh, in this case, uh, two years of a pandemic in which I had no real teaching assignments. Mm. So I had two free years to write a book. That you wouldn't have uh, ordinarily had, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, if I was busy teaching, and especially if I was still living in Brussels, for example, I was teaching 13 courses uh, a week. That's a lot. That's a big, heavy yeah. load, isn't it? Well, and I appreciate, what, yeah, yeah. I appreciate what you said. You had a post, I think it was this morning in our Facebook group. You said that you had a sudden realization not long ago about how deeply embedded some of these evangelical fundamentalist beliefs were and you literally wrote post-it notes around yeah. the house and like you're having to say affirmations to yourself kind of to reprogram the dogma it's that deep-seated isn't it that's right because as i wrote in the post and i do write this in the book in more detail uh, i was facing a situation and i noticed i was feeling a lot of anxiety and it suddenly dawned on me i wouldn't feel anxiety if i didn't think that I did not deserve mm -hmm. a happy outcome or there to be happy or to have a rich and feeling fulfilling life. And that really hit me between the eyes. Wow. Where did that idea come from? And it's not always necessary to pinpoint the source of an idea. What I find is most important is that you have that idea, mm. whether you could say, Oh yeah, my mother told me that when I was five years old, you know, maybe you'll find it, but 
in this case, it's not hard to find the idea that we grew up with that this world and this life is a veil of sorrows. Mm-hmm. A veil of tears. Veil of tears. And That's when we get to heaven, yeah, when we get to heaven, God will wipe every tear. Oh yeah. I can uh, remember yeah. singing all the songs. When we all yeah. get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. That will be, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and you're not really supposed to pursue your happiness. You're supposed to pursue the will of God. And that might very well might include suffering mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. when he sends you trials. It's a sign that he's treating you as one of his own, one of his children. So you should rejoice in suffering, uh, which is a classic case of gaslighting. Yes, it is. Well, you know, I'm really feeling miserable and this is terrible. Oh, no, you should be happy because God is treating you like a child. Right. So I wrote on a post-it note, a permission slip, I call it, uh, which was to the effect, I hereby give myself permission to, to be happy and to have a rich and fulfilling life. And I just kept repeating it. I put it on these notes everywhere, kept repeating that. And gradually my emotional state really lifted and I had a lot less anxiety. And now when new things come up that pose a challenge to me, I repeat that because I've seen really, it's always true. Things have always worked out for the better, even though it's been pretty punishing at times. Uh, I've emerged in a better place. And ever since I stopped punishing myself with guilt and uh, fear, I have noticed that the less guilt and fear I've punished myself with, the less of those kind of situations have come to me in my life. And uh, there have been certainly many challenges since I moved here to Canada uh, professionally, not really personally, because my relationship with my wife is really wonderful. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a testament to a lot of inner work both of us have done to be in a place where we can uh, not expect the other person to make us happy. And so we have a lot of harmony in our relationship. But the professional challenges of finding new positions at, at universities, and these made me have some sleepless nights for a while, but I keep reminding myself that I give myself permission to be happy and have a rich and fulfilling life. Mm. And I have some other mottos that I repeat to myself a lot. Uh, The right thing always comes along at the right time. I've seen that happen all the time. The right thing always comes along at the right time. Uh, Now, I might not understand the timing, but the timing has always been right because I'm ready for that thing at that time whatever Mm -hmm. happens to be. And so the timing about the book was my father had just died and I received a a small inheritance, which uh, made it possible for me not to worry about work, like a salary. Mm -hmm. And so I had a little bit of something to work with there. So I wasn't worried about that. And I had a very supportive uh, wife who said, now's the time to write your book. And uh, my father died in December, and I started writing the book on January 1st, 2020. It took me a year to write the first draft, and by that time, I realized that the earlier chapters don't match. Right, the it's always chapter. what happens, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so then it took me another year to, to rewrite the whole text. So it took two full years of research and writing, and I was free. So the right thing came along at the right time, and and then... Uh, I didn't worry about finding the publisher during that process. I tried to enjoy the journey and the journey gave me so much pleasure. And I was making posts, which were excerpts from the book and getting a lot of positive feedback and interesting interactions. And then finally, when it came time to approach publishers, I had a pretty good package to present them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, I credit my wife, Alexa. She went through things with me to make sure it looked really presentable and good. She has a good eye for those things too. I approached eight publishers and three of them came back right away wanting to publish the book. And I uh, went with the first offer, which turned out to be the best. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it's a very nice publishing house. And I'm very pleased the way that worked out. 
Yeah, it's amazing. And there's no prayer involved, no searching through the Bible to try to find all the answers, agonizing over Bible verses. And where does this apply to my life? Well, we need to go because it's been an hour. We've been talking for a long time. This has really been fascinating, though. Your book is Tulip, the Poisonous Flower of Calvinism. Where can people find the book? And then also, where can people get a hold of you if they want to dialogue with you, right. talk to you about your journey? What's the yeah. best place to find you? Right. So uh, the book has a lovely cover with these dead tulips. Uh, mm -hmm. The publisher yeah, did a great job. And he put it on Amazon as a Kindle and Amazon as a paperback. It's on another ebook, um, Smashwords. You can mm -hmm. get it as an e-word on Smashwords. And now it's available as an electronic book and a paperback on the Barnes & Noble site. Uh, mm -hmm. So all of those places, you can find it. Uh, you can also find the links for all those things. Uh, I saw you put one up in the group. That was very nice. Thank yes, you. Yes, I did. <laughs> but they're also on my personal page on Facebook. So, right, they so can... look you up on Facebook as well. So yeah, yeah that's a good way. I'll put a link yeah. in the show notes to the Amazon page. So thank yeah. you so much, David. Uh, we will definitely come back around. I'm interested to chat with you again, see how your book is doing. Maybe we can do another one of these coming up at some point this Great. year. That would be really nice. It's always a pleasure being with you, Clay. Thanks, Thank David. You. Take care. I'll speak to you soon. Okay. See you later. Bye.